I don't have a degree, and yet I lecture at business schools. I lecture management, and I lecture senior management classes. And if you look at the way the world is going, millennials might have invented social media, but Gen Zs are the ones that weaponized it, is that we have equated time with productivity. Or let's say we've equated time with guaranteed productivity, because it's not just about project management, it's more about people management. I think the world needs a lot more humanity full stop. So just be nice. The human species, the human species needs touch, it needs contact, um, it needs that, that kind of humanity. Perfect. Welcome, Dion. I'm very excited to have you here. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for taking time uh, to be here. If you look at your life in the past 10 years and going forward into the next 10 years, how would you summarize what you do? Um, I've been able to boil that down into one really short thing because I've been asked quite a few times, what do you do? Um, and the short answer is, um, I'll make you think differently. So... Um, on the bio that I put out, um, one of the things that I put there is I'm a professional cage rattler, but uh, in essence, um, I want to make you think differently, short and sweet. That's amazing. Um, in in your own opinion, how would you uh, how will automation and artificial intelligence impact the job market? Um, that's one of the, the most frequently asked questions I get is, so when the algorithms or the robots take over, which uh, in uh, this year, it seems that generative AI is really, really taking over. Um, the, the answer there is um, the displacement economy. So yes, some jobs will be lost, um, but then some jobs will also be, be gained. So if you look at the uh, World Economic Forum, uh, it's a future of jobs report for 2023. Um, they reckon in the next five years or so, uh, there will be a loss um, of about 89 million jobs, which sounds like a lot, but they said also there's going to be a 69 million jobs expected to be created. So what, if you ask me that question, then it is about the net loss of about 14 million jobs. And if you look at that, it's about 2% of the jobs available today. So in a grand scheme of things, there's an adjustment, a small-ish adjustment, but we are talking about millions of jobs. So whenever I do a, um, a corporate uh, class, I, I, I lecture at different business schools, I always ask the people to say, are you sure you're not in that 2% um, of the jobs that are going to be lost? And if you are, then what do you do about it? And how do you improve your skills or continue to improve your skills so that you make sure you don't fall into that 2% um, in the next five years? Oh, that's that's amazing. So if if I don't want to fall into that um, 2% bracket, what skills, attributes do you, do you believe would be most valuable for me? So that's an interesting question. So we've been looking, we're partnering with a another company called Fresh Vision. Um, and what Sharon does at, at Fresh Vision, which is what is um, my belief and mantra as well, is that your skills are, I think companies are starting to look more at, at capabilities versus skills. So it's a, it's a very nuanced conversation, but an important one to, to have. 
Um, in fact, just uh, I write for City Press as well. I just submitted a column, and that is a whole thing about tertiary education, um, the the relevance or the value of uh, let's say base degrees or some some degrees, and the fact that companies are starting to drop that requirement because over the years uh, we've gone into something according to the, the, the Harvard Business School um, as it's called credentialing or degree inflation. So a lot of the the jobs that are on the market today are require a four year based degree or three year based degree or jobs that actually don't require those those degrees. So we've we've kind of lost the way there. So coming back to your question is what kind of skills you do. I always recommend to I get a lot of um, have a lot of conversations with parents who say what are the jobs of the future? What must my child learn? And I always say short courses um, and continuing upskill upskilling yourself is a better way than plunging into one career trajectory, which is a sort of almost outdated way of looking at careers, which is a very linear way of doing things. You start looking at a career portfolio now um, and you amass a, uh, a different skill set that, um, that is valuable to, to more than one company or more than one sector. And the other thing that I, that I think is important is that I think beforehand, if you looked at a very a linear career trajectory, you would expect to say okay you go to school you go to varsity maybe you you get into one sector and you change your job two three times in your career but you stay within that sector what you're starting to see now especially with skills uh, future business models um the digitalization of, of businesses is that you are more likely to end up in a sector that you never thought you would be in with the same skill set because uh, the lines are starting to blur now um, and, and that's why it's really important to have a very, very sort of hybrid skill set. So to put it differently, and the other passion I have, um, and the other thing that keeps me awake at night is the fact um, of South Africa is obviously uh, we've got a horrific youth unemployment uh, rate. And again, if you look at the World Economic Forum, they are wanting to upskill a lot of people by 2030 or so. Um, and they're talking about micro-credentials, which coincidentally and interestingly is the same kind of concept of doing short courses and creating a varied skill set um, that, that companies are going to need. So the micro-credentials for me, specifically for a South African context, really works well because you a lot of people don't have access to uh, all the luxury um, to be able to go to university, do a four-year degree, and then still not. Uh, get a job. So that the horrific stat that I keep uh, repeating to people is that um, of the, um, the, the the millions who applied for a 350 rand relief grant uh, during COVID, 800,000 of those applicants all had degrees, which means something is wow. terribly, terribly wrong in the country. And there's something terribly wrong with the recruitment um, the recruitment process and this concept of degree inflation or credentialing, because all of those 800,000 people thought that they would, the, the doors of success would open as soon as they got that piece of paper from the university to say, you've got this degree, but that's not, that doesn't ring true um, anymore. And if you start looking at uh, multinational companies across the world, they have started dropping that, um, that, that degree requirement, which is very, very interesting. And then I, if people still, push back at me, I remind them that the Japanese space program no longer 
no longer requires you to actually have a degree. So if the space program wow. says it's okay, then I think a corporate company is going to be okay if they, if they find a different way of um, capabilities versus um, skill sets. And then just one last thing, um, Tyrone, is, is that if you think, if you look at the future of work, um, it is no matter how senior leadership and senior management want to say, no, 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 we all want to get back to you know, 2019 and, 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 and how we used to do it. Um, the future of work is going to be more and more decentralized. So what you actually want in the very near future is a workforce that has hybrid skills, that has an entrepreneurial mindset, which brings me back to Gen Z. We can talk about that again. But that, that is the workforce that you want um, in, in the future. And that's going to be the best for, for the health of the company. Um, whereas we're still stuck in a, a location-based mindset where you come to the shrine of the, the, the corporate company, um, you clock in for a 40, 40 hours uh, work week, five days a week, um, and then you're just part of that, that machine. Those days are gone. Um, but I think a lot of companies haven't realized that they are on very shaky ground. Oh, so then my, my next question is what then becomes the value of the piece of paper? Because people still want to go to varsity and get their degree. Yes. So I, I got a lot of flags. So, I mean, if you think about this, I've, I've had this, I've been on this conversation and this argument since 2015. So 2015 wow. was when Fees Must Fall started uh, rearing its, its head. We yeah. still have the same issues. So since 2015, we haven't resolved. This is almost like a decade later. Um, and in 2015, um, EY in the UK dropped this HR bombshell. And they said, um, and, and, and I mean, uh, EY at that stage was one of the most kind of um, you know, left brain companies, we only hire postgraduates, all of that. And they released this bombshell and they said, actually, if you don't have a degree, we actually still want to speak to you because we have a different um, metric of measuring what your capabilities are. And there was such an outcry that they actually got an independent company to verify what their, their new system was. And the result was, you have a new system, um, go right ahead and, and carry on doing it. So I got a lot of flack because people said, well, don't you want your doctor or your lawyer or your, your engineer to have a degree? And I said, yes, you don't, nobody reads properly. But I said, it's not that degrees are completely obsolete, but there are different um, ways of doing things. So, so yes, your qualification is important, but we have got stuck and our, our parents are equally responsible for this than as, as, as well as corporate recruiters of saying, you have to have the degree and how many you know young people have, have heard this? Just do the degree as as a backup, or you you've got to have a backup plan. Those days of a backup plan are also gone because if you look at what the qualifications are, it's not that degrees are no longer necessary, but it's not the the be all and end all of it. There are a wider range of qualifications better suited to future business models, which we are not looking at, but we're still stuck in this kind of um you have to have that degree to be able to do that. So um, full disclosure, I don't have a degree, and yet I lecture oh. at business schools. I lecture management, and I lecture senior management classes. Um, people ask me to review their PhD research. So I'm going sticking with my own guns to say that it is possible to get uh, ahead in the world or find your niche um, in alternate ways. So all I'm saying is 
the degree is not the only way to get from uh, secondary into tertiary and then into into the job market. Um, there, there are many ways of doing things there, but um, we are at a, let's call it a bit of an impasse with, with parents and with HR recruitment uh, wanting that stipulation. So you're here um, traveling the world, speaking all over the world, consulting, um, tracking trends, lecturing at business schools with no degree. With no degree. Do you, do you often find yourself um, missing opportunities because people still expect you to have that degree when you are? Um, no, because I'll tell you where it's become a little bit of an awkward conversation is when a business school um, or I was invited uh, by another multinational company last year to go to Saudi Arabia to, to give a one-day um, business of innovation lecture module, which I, I do, to the digital government agency in Saudi Arabia, which I have sort of 10 ministries there and everything like that. Um, the fact that I didn't have a degree was not, a, not the issue, but the visa requirements wanted a qualification before they would let me in to, as a, for, for a business visa. The other wow. awkward conversation is when a business school actually wants me to put put me on their books as faculty or adjunct faculty. And then they ask me about what my qualifications are. And I say, well, I don't have those qualifications, but I've done this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And I've lectured at other, at other um, business schools. Then they don't know what to do because their paperwork requires me to have that. But then yet they want me because they know I can deliver. So it's kind of not my problem. It's their problem uh, after that. Wow, that's a very nice problem to have. <laughs> yeah, so um, COVID amplified this idea of remote working and hybrid working. Yeah. But there's the struggle for leadership right now, or management, mostly management, is how do you track if a person is actually working while they're at home? How do you actually see if they're actually doing the work or if they're working for eight hours at home? Okay, so now you've opened a whole new can of worms, which um, we can talk about a long time with this because <laughs> this also really is a real big bugbear of mine about uh, corporate companies, corporate culture, um, is that we have equated time with productivity. Or let's say we've equated time with guaranteed productivity. And any manager knows that is not true. So no matter how much they insist on it, they know deep down that's not true. That's not the, not, not the way to measure things. And then if I go back to, to, to measurement of productivity or we go to um, what people expect to be in the office. So a five-day work week, 40 hours a week um, will equal or guarantee that productivity. But then I remind people that the 40-hour work week and the five-day work week were established, um, well, the 40-hour work week was established in the, the late 18th century um to to stop factory workers working 80 hours a week so they put it down to 40. ford motors pioneered the five-day work week for exactly the same reason for factory workers not to work seven days a week but to work five days a week and then for some unknown reason this was cemented for the whole world in a labor relations act in 1936 in america so for almost a century we've been following an american labor law um, that is being used to measure factory workers in a knowledge and a 
digital era where those metrics are not the same. So again, we're stuck on an old system that we think, okay, well, that, that's how it works. And then uh, it will guarantee that. Um, but people know that that's not true. So what you're starting to see is a lot more companies saying, um, we me measure me on output and an outcomes basis. So there's also uh, the acronym ROW, results only work environment, which was also pioneered a few, few uh, years. And uh, lo and behold, um, all the productivity went went up. So the, with the onset of digitization or companies going into digital transformation, you are getting, and especially post-COVID, you're starting to see a lot more, um, now this is sort of white, white collar office workers. You, you're starting to see a lot more people um, being digital nomads, working wherever they can, working remotely, doing all of those kind of things. And basically it's just saying, tell me what you want and when you want it delivered, I will deliver it to the best of my abilities on that date. It shouldn't concern you when I do it or where I do it. The support of company culture is a very different different conversation because yes, I do believe that there's a hybrid, there is a need for that. But fundamentally, the very rigid 40-hour work week, five days a week uh, model to measure productivity is is not only a fallacy, but it's going to be fast and, and obsolete. So that's what I said earlier, is that the future of work, whether they like it or not, in terms of leadership, is going to happen. We are going to become more and more decentralized. So you want um, that entrepreneur mindset. So, so it's, it's somewhere between a full-time employee and an entrepreneur somebody that can think for themselves. If you if you have a decentralized business, you're going to want people that are able to make their own decisions, be able to, to think very, very differently, have a hybrid skill set. That is the future of, of, of where business models are going. The old corporate temple and the hierarchies, the silos, all of those kind of things. We can see um, even now coming to the 21st century, that was a very 20th century model, which is not really ideally suited to what my passion is, is how to scale innovation in large organizations. Those those kind of things, those structures, the 20th century structures are really, they blunt the innovation um, process. So it, it's not very helpful for, for innovation at all. And, and all companies want innovation at the moment. You muted. So the idea, sorry, so the idea of a four-day week week has been gaining traction. And what would you say have been the significant factors to that? All right. So um, again, full disclosure. So uh, at my company, Flux Trends, we switched to a four-day work week in September 2021. So we're almost two years in, into it. Uh, wow. The world hasn't the world hasn't stopped for us. Uh, the sky didn't fall. Um, it uh, it took a little bit of adjustment, um, but yes, I'm lucky because uh, I, I run a, a small a small company and and we're able to do that. And we're a virtual company um, anyway. So just a, a little aside um, that we went into lockdown full lockdown in South Africa in March, 2020 on a Thursday, 2020, yeah. Wednesday before I handed my office keys to the caretaker cause I had given um, notice of my office one month before um, that lockdown day. So um, I guess I can call myself a futurist if we were able to, to be able to wow. do that. But back, to your, <laughs> back to your question. 
Um, Taran, so, so what is it all about? I think I think fundamentally, if you look at all of the the different trends that have been popping up in the last 18 months, so um, the great resignation, semigration, quiet quitting, all of these things, there's a new one called rust when people are just completely depleted, um, is they are all little blimps on the radar. But what it really, really is, and the four-day work is included, is what we at Flux call the lockdown life audit. So other futurists would have uh, will tell you or tell different companies, you know, this is the future of work based on technologies, or, or this is how we uh, it's going to unravel. We went uh, as we do a very unconventional route. So we started looking at the life changes people had during two years of lockdown. So if psychologists say you will, it takes only 21 days to change a behavioral pattern. We wanted to interrogate and find out what 24 months did to people's mindset. And even during um, COVID and lockdown, you could start seeing the change happen because um, in terms of rewards and benefits, um, you know, childcare was not really top of mind. Suddenly after lockdown, people wanted childcare benefits. They didn't want just a normal uh, medical aid. They wanted a medical aid that would support mental well-being, mental health, all of those kind of things. So things really started shifting. And what when we started um, researching this, yeah, we discovered that that lockdown life audit was reshaping workforces around the world. So there wasn't so much the bosses or senior management leading that discussion saying, okay, we must change this. It was the workforce pushing back saying, actually, I want something different. And I keep having to repeat myself to, to, to management um, um, structures that it's not that people don't want to work. It's that people want to work differently. And that's a very different thing. So when you mention the four-day work week, there's, a, there's inevitably a knee-jerk reaction when people, um, I go into every you know, big corporate and they go, no, 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 don't talk about four-day work week. And inevitably, the, when I do, the whole workforce says, yeah, 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 we want a four-day work week. And then the bosses get a bit grumpy. Um, and my, my point with the four-day work week is it's not just it has to be a, a dead break that everybody gets a Friday off. Because if you look at companies around the world and different countries, not only companies, countries have done tests and uh, about a four-day work week, is the, the key to that is the flexibility. People just want a flexible way of doing things, of balancing their life. They don't want to be that cog in the machine anymore. Um, they want that lifestyle. So, so ironically, before the pandemic, a Gen Z uh, mantra would be, I don't want a job, I want a lifestyle. So your baby boomer bosses would like flutter and choke on their coffee and say, yeah, well, that's, you know, uh, you know, you can, that's not going to happen very often. And then they, they, the other mantra was, work is not a place I go to, work is what I do. And so ironically, after COVID and with this lockdown life audit, the rest of the world are going, actually, maybe those Gen Zs had something that we, we all want. I don't just want a job. I want a lifestyle. I don't. Work is not a place I have to go to. Work is what I do, and I want some balance. So the four-day work week is part of that. And, you know, anybody um, watching this or listening to this really needs to, to understand that a four-day work week can be, there, there are many versions of it. So in Iceland, they slice the 40-hour work week into a 38-hour work week. Sometimes you get uh, companies that do um, every alternate Friday. So 
sometimes different teams will rotate um, maybe once a month, maybe twice a month, they'll have a, a Friday off. The point is you can do it no matter how you want to, but it, it gives people a bit of balance in terms of, um, of life. So um, one company, it was an NGO that we uh, consulted with, they're gonna uh, overhaul the entire kind of operating system. Um, I was very fortunate, I had a really good um, CEO that, that was that was listening and so that, and he, he completely um, applied all of our suggestions into it. And the one thing, it just shows that, that he said, okay, instead of starting at nine o'clock, um, let's start the day at, at, at 10 o'clock. This was before remote working, um, but it had sort of, um, you know, hot desking, all of those kind of things in the, in, the, in the system. And he said, the minute they switched onto that, all of the parents, specifically the working moms who had to do the school run and everything like that, were just completely, completely relieved. They were chilled. They were they just were more present at work because they could get all the house stuff done, the, the, the school run done. Then they would come to work and then they were fully um, focused instead of trying to rush through, through everything. So I think the thing is just is is empathy and and a very, very different management system. Wow. Um, it's funny that you mentioned the, the Gen Z's how say I'm a business owner, how how can I engage and manage and connect with them effectively? Because they are a different generation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so that's why um at Flux, we're very, very proud of our, our research. I started researching Gen Z eight years ago, long before they even started coming of age, because I knew uh, these were the first digital uh, digital natives of humanity. So the the learning patterns, the how you access information or the access to information is completely different to, to any other um, generation, even even to millennials. And and I've got this wonderful video clip that I play when I have to explain Gen Z to, to um, older corporates um, and especially retail companies. Um, and the clip says, and there's a young Gen Z uh, 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 a female that says, Millennials might have invented social media, but Gen Zs are the ones that weaponized it. And I said, yo, you've got to be careful. Don't, don't underestimate a, a digital native at all. So in terms of engaging, that, that's also true because I think one of the big fallacies is that, oh, well, okay, Gen Z, they also just want to be remote workers, all of that. And I said, that's actually not true. Um, it's one, one characteristic of that generation is that it's a, it's a learning experience. So even in terms of branding, if you, if you go into the retail space, um, a brand is a, uh, a knowledge portal. Um, you expect that brand to, to be an expert on those things and, and, and you want that whether it's sort of sports attire or food or something like that. And, and for even that kind of buying process, it's about the story behind it, it's about the sustainability, it's about the fair practice, all of those kind of things. There's a high social justice barometer in it. So that affects a lot of things or the lenses that Gen Z look at everything through. So whether it's the work, the corporate culture, the products I buy, all of those kind of things, and work specifically, and this is again the big disjoint. You can see a pattern going here. I've got this. I've got this beef with with kind of old stuck leadership. Um, and the, the the problem is that the the leadership aspect is well, Gen Z is an entry level workforce. You come in, you don't know the business, so you sit down and you shut up. And I say that is the, the worst thing you can do. And then don't come to me a year later and say, oh, we can't retain any of this young uh, young workforce because there's just a big churn in it and they only stay for the two years that it looks okay on the on the CV. 
And I'm saying you forget that it is a, a learning process. So the fact that it's not just remote, I want to come into the office because I want feedback from my manager, my superior. I want to know how I'm doing. I want to learn from my, my mistakes. It's, a, it's, it's that learning process. So even if I do make a mistake, I want to know how to do it better. And it works in reverse as well. So if a brand really screws up, um, don't just say sorry. Tell us how you're going to fix it. So there's a lot of similarities between the the relationship to a brand and how and 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 buying a product with actually working with with a company. You want that feedback, but you just want things to be a little bit different. I don't see the point. You know, um, I was uh, I'm busy dealing with another um, sort of global educating company, and and I was speaking to somebody, and uh, they were in Singapore. And they said there's a very conservative corporate culture there. So I said, yes, I understand that. It's very patriarchal, very hierarchical. Um, and they said, you know, they, they had the session and the, the facilitator or the educator um, was was talking to to this group of executives and the one executive. And these weren't boomers. These were like Generation X. They were sort of in their 40s saying, um, yeah, but you know, this young generation don't have values. And the educator said, no, they have values. They're just different to yours. doesn't mean it's it's not right if it's different values, but there's a different measurement system to to this. And then a senior partner quipped up and says, yeah, but there's no aspiration because, you know, when I entered the company, um, you know, I knew I could work up, work my way up and, and get that fancy office in the corner with a great view. And the educator said, well, I don't think this generation actually want that office, never mind being, I don't think they even want to be in that building um, permanently. Um, so again, it's, it's, there are values and they have different aspirations, but they're not the same as you did when you started out. And the world has changed. So that's why the whole thing about skills, about capabilities, about degrees is a real passion of mine. And um, yeah, I use it every time to to have these hard conversations with, with leadership. And then I end up having a lot of conversations with parents who have got teenagers and, and want me to give them career advice and that sort of thing. That's really amazing. Um, we've seen a shift um, because back then, I think in the 2000s, if you said you were an entrepreneur, you'd be considered an unemployed individual who's trying to figure things out. And now if you were just a person, a lazy teenager playing games, you know, that w wouldn't be considered a job. Now we have gamers who are actually making a living out of gaming. We have the creator economy of people that are on social media making money. How would you see sort of those shifts transforming how we what we consider as work? Yeah, that's a that's a really big one. And you know, it goes back to my comments about the you know, when parents say, you know, just do the degree so that you know there's something to fall back on. Um yeah. I just look at them and I say, that fallback is that's gone. You don't you really, you know, something something else will come up. Um and, and that's what I'd say about about the degrees. There are different qualifications, different credentials. And there are so many different entry points. So, so the, the, the digitalization of businesses has created that. There, there's a far greater scope of opportunities and different ways of, of doing things. So the sort of getting out of the notion that 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 you know getting that that job that is going to you know and then you're going to work for for thirty years and wait for a pension. I mean that's that, that's really gone. That that's no use to 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 a Gen Z generation. Um, but I always tell people, and especially HR, that if you if you look at the behaviors 
the entrepreneurial spirit of, of, of Gen Z and the social justice um, barometers there, if you combine the two, you will, by the time someone from Gen Z comes for that job interview, that Gen Z already had one, two side hustles at 16, at 18. Um, they've probably been trading in cryptocurrency or fiat currencies, you know, on, uh, you know, stock talk, uh, the hashtag stock talk, there's billions on, you know, on that. Um, there's, there's ways and means of doing things. And again, when I say to people, just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. And at the same time, when I speak to a lot of parents, when they've got much younger teens and they're saying, oh, we don't know what's going to happen because, you know, the school's flagging them as, as being disruptive, whereas they're just bored uh, with, with a really, really sort of outdated schooling system. Um, then I say, if you, if you take them out and you, if you put them into a different way of learning, um, just remember that just because they're learning differently doesn't mean that they're not learning. It just means that they're learning a completely different way. The end results, um, you know, the, the way you manage it could be the same, but it's just that it, it doesn't have to follow the traditional path because now what we've seen is that the traditional path is 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 a bit worn and uh, it's got some potholes in it and it's, it's not quite the path to success and happiness that that we we thought we we used to have. So I always coach people in HR to say, and and it's it's, it's very against the nature of what they do because I say. Um, you have to be a mentor to a younger a workforce and you have to encourage and nurture a career portfolio rather than a career trajectory. So you will have that career portfolio, you will amass that. And, and you know, as I said before, you will switch lanes, you will go into a different sector that you didn't, never thought you would, would land up to. That's just the reality of, of where we're going. But HR just see it as, but then we can't retain them and we can't... Um, lock them in, you know, and, and, and hold on to them. And I'm saying, but that's fundamentally wrong is because if you change the way of management and you encourage that and you become that mentor and you are able to nurture that, and if the, the, the employment experience is a continual learning experience, you will probably see that that person won't leave. They will stay with you because they are continually learning. And that, I don't get too many light bulb moments for for that, but but it is it is what it is, and and yeah, I believe emphatically that that's that is how you connect with um with with the different workforce completely. Definitely, and I think there's a there's a growing need for human connection. I think especially during COVID, what most people craved was just that human connection, seeing people. How do we strike that balance? Uh, whether it's in remote work, just the ability to be able to be in a space where you can interact with people and work with people. Does yeah, that filter think... hybrid? Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, I absolutely get that because I, you know, I, uh, I always get some some pushback from from senior management saying no, but you know, it, it, it's we need that to to build the culture. And I say yes, we we do need that to build the culture, but it doesn't have to be as rigid as it was. So you need to give some leeway. So I always say to people, you know, being in the trends business for such a long time, you see a new trend or something that's happening, it's a bit like a pendulum swing. It'll swing to one extreme. So it was COVID, everybody's working remotely. It'll swing back. Eventually it will fall back into the middle. But I say, don't forget that the middle it settles back into is not the same middle that it started out from. Something would have fundamentally changed. So, so yes, so the in-person contact, 
I think is essential. We've you've seen all the research that the learning by osmosis, the the, um, the sparking of new ideas, that's very important, especially for the electron in innovation, is that's also stunted because people tend to rely on on ideas that are tried and tested rather than testing new things if it's in a remote kind of um, environment. So if you are with people exchanging ideas, it's a richer experience. But that said, you also need to understand that we need this more flexible way of, of doing things. So it's, it's, it's meeting people halfway and saying, okay, um, this is the way we need to do that. And the one crucial thing about that is about management, because we, we understood, we, we've seen during COVID lockdown, the, the the steepest learning curve was actually with your middle management because they were never trained or they never had to manage a team remotely. So that was the biggest thing. So your senior leadership would still say, okay, well, we can do this, but it was your middle management that was really at the coal face and at the firing line of doing this, and they had to try and do that. So that kind of interaction with, with the workforce has changed remarkably because it's not just about project management, it's more about people management. And they might say to you, yeah, 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 but we, we've always managed people. I'm like, no, 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 you've managed projects. You haven't really, really got under the skin of managing people and what the nuances about that that is. It's a very, very different management technique compared to saying, okay, this is your deadline, crack the whip, let's, let's meet this deadline and and don't worry about the sort of the, the soft stuff um, and, and the human element to it. Now the human element is front and center of it and now we've got to build management around that and that's a difficult thing to do yeah so let me paint a picture for you say i am a 22 year old accountant is my job at risk um i would say yes because 2023 is the year of generative ai um but also just remember i mean you know so they say there's all of these kind of scaremongering things about generative AI, well, your job's going to be taken, everything like that. Um, just because, I mean, if you think about uh, a simple spreadsheet, um, hate it, love it, hate it, a, sim a spreadsheet is automation of, of, of one sort. It's just an earlier form of automation. It didn't wipe out jobs. It made jobs a lot more productive. It made it easier to be able to do things. So for me, if you're a 22-year-old accountant to say, yes, um, you know, again, check if you're going to be in that 2% of, 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 of attrition of, of those jobs that are going to be lost. If you think you are that number cruncher and some generative AI is going to be able to do your job, then best you, you already upskill um, yourself. And just because you're in your 20s doesn't mean you don't upskill. So I'm very fortunate to have my own personal case study. So my, my niece, she's in her 30s. She's a, um, an older millennial um, or a mid-millennial. And in her 20s, she upskilled herself three times. Um, so she was, had sort of good forward thinking and she upskilled herself in very different areas of expertise. So she went from um, uh, UX to designing UX to finance to something else. Um, and as a result, she is proof of the pudding of what I say. She has a set of hybrid skills, but she's a, she's a committed gig worker. So a lot of companies that she works with um, always offer her a permanent position. And she says, thank you very much, but I'm not going to sell my soul to you. Uh, you can up my hourly rate, which they do. Um, and uh, her, her skill sets are, are, are very, very valuable. So to that 22-year-old, I'll say, yes, 
check about that 2%, but then also check what other skills you can add onto it um, to make your 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 offering, your skills offering to, to any company a lot more attractive so that you can change lanes uh, a lot easier as well. This is great. So I do this thing where I ask my guests to ask a question for the next guest who's going to come after that. So your question from the previous guest is that um, what are the three things you've learned from people that um, were at the end of their lives? What are the three things that you've learned, learned or yeah you've learned yeah from people that were at the end of their lives? Um, what I've learned is that there is a lot of regret. Um, I wish I hadn't done this. I wish I hadn't, which is why we're talking about uh, flexibility. I wish I didn't spend all the time at work. I didn't wish, you know, miss my son's uh, soccer match, all of those. And so there's regret. Um, the other thing is that um, we all think we have time. Uh, we don't. Um, so you live your life uh, a lot more mindfully and you, you do things because, you know, uh, life is short and you, you have to do that. Um, and the last one is just um, yeah, is, is is that humanity. You know, the more we go into a digital era and a digital world, and we've got generative AI, we've got automation and robotics and everything like that. Um, I fundamentally believe that humanity is going to become even more important than that. We see it with young Gen Z, sort of the incidence of loneliness, um, just being completely on uh, a digital native, is not working for a human. The human species. The human species needs touch. It needs contact. Um, it needs that that kind of humanity. And if you look at the way the world is going, never mind if you just die. I think the world needs a lot more humanity. Full stop. So just be nice. Oh, thank you very much. And what question would you ask the next guest? Um, the next question I'd like to ask the next guest is: Well, it's something that I always do. At the end of my innovation modules, I ask somebody to pledge um, when they go back to the office uh, the next day um, is what are you going to do differently from tomorrow? And you've got to stick to the, you've got to stick to that. Just even if it's one thing, what are you going to do differently? Because if you do the same thing and you expect the same result, then you know that's the, the definition of, of of stupidity. But uh, we in such a fast-changing world. So if the world is changing so fast, what is your pledge for, for tomorrow that I'm going to do something different? Oh, thank you very much, Dion. Um, I'm going to ask you just for, for a parting uh, message, 60 seconds, feel free to speak whatever message you want to uh, pass out to the viewers. Okay, gosh. Um, uh, elevator pitch, I guess, is... Yes. I... Yeah, I, I just think um, be open to learning uh, in, in the experience and, and being in the trend space and just looking at, at what is coming up ahead. I go into so many different companies where, yes, I understand it. Um, you know, things are unraveling, so people are buried in operational issues. But, you know, for me as, as a futurist, as a trend spot and everything like that, there are things that are coming up on the horizon that are big game changes. If you're not aware of them, then they're going to take you out or you're going to be left eating your competitor's dust or you're just going to become 
um, irrelevant. So, so open yourself to to learning, to to changing your own mind as well. I think that's a really important one. Uh, don't be afraid to say, okay, maybe I was wrong, and 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 change your mind. You can change your mind, um, but just be open to it and and embrace and embrace new things um, as, as much as possible. And if you can't embrace it, at least acknowledge that it's there. You don't have to drink the Kool Aid. You can just say, okay, the Kool Aid's there, and um, I won't, I'll pass on that, but I know it's there. So. Wow. Thank you very much, Dion. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. And thank you to the viewers and listeners. Thank you for watching. Like, subscribe, comment. Thank you very much. Right. Thanks very much. Thank you, man. Thank you for your time. Appreciate okay. it. Good.